Well, it's great to be here with you this morning singing songs like that together. Thank you, church, for the way you sing from your heart truth this morning. And let me invite you, grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. You can go ahead and find your place there in chapter 11 is where we're going to be in just a few minutes. And just to remind you, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a, paper co- a paperback uh, copy in front of you. You can take that, use it this morning. If you need a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. But find your place in 2 Samuel 11. Now, if you've been following along with the story, this was taken from your reading this past week as we as a church are reading through the Bible together and coming in here on Sunday and taking different passages and walking through them together, also in our study groups and life groups. And we're going to land in 2 Samuel 11 here in just a few minutes. Uh, I told you guys last week, I think I told this service, I can't always remember what I say in two different services, but this past week um, I had a real privilege to get away to New York City with my wife for a few days, and we were celebrating 20 years of marriage, isn't that awesome, but 20, 20 happy years of marriage, and uh, so we got away for a few days, we flew up there Monday and just spent several days in New York City, and I don't know how many of you have traveled there or spent any time in New York City, but I got to tell you, man, I love that city, uh, love being there, we spent all of Tuesday at 9-11, the uh, memorial there and the museum, if all you go for is that, it is worth the trip to spend some time there. And then we spent a little bit of time on Broadway. There's nothing I want to do more than listen to somebody sing for two and a half hours uh, on Broadway. But anyway, my wife loves it, okay? So um, that was for her. And uh, if she says I nodded off during that time, don't believe it. Didn't happen, maybe for a second. But anyway, so we had a great time together just seeing that city. We love the city. We spent, um, we, we actually stayed in Queens, which is outside of Manhattan, to make it affordable. It's very expensive to stay in Manhattan, so that made us have to subway into the city. Now, one of the, I, I guess, most impacting times that we had in New York City was riding the subway, all right? Anybody ever ridden the subway in New York City? It, it is death-defying at times. I'll be honest with you, it's kind of dark and dreary, and you're not sure you're going to make it off alive, and... Uh, you're kind of down there, and you're trying to figure all these maps out of where you're going. Uh, there was a moment Wednesday night when we, were, we knew we were on the train we were supposed to be on. And imagine, it just didn't take us where we thought we were going to go. So we wound up in Queens in the middle of the night and got off, and it was dark, and nobody was there. And there was a moment of panic, but we found our way back, thank goodness. There were some lessons, some things that caught my attention on the subway that really lead into 2 Samuel 11, believe it or not. One of the things about the subway in New York is, um, I learned something, people of New York, they don't, they don't baby you in New York. I mean, they don't, they don't coddle you, I mean, really. You get into this station, and, and there's this train barreling into the station, and it's not going to stop for you. In fact, it, it comes into the station, and I'm not exaggerating, it's going 40 or 50 miles an hour until it stops, And the only thing separating you as you stand on the platform from this train coming in, ready, is about a foot and a half yellow line that you're supposed to stay behind. And throughout the subway station, there's these signs over and over that warn you and encourage you this, stay behind the yellow line. Because on the other side of that yellow line is a train that's coming at 50 50 miles an hour plus. It's not stopping for you. And if you cross that yellow line, there's going to be a price to pay. 
So one of the things that I literally took a picture of because it caught my attention, and Jennifer could give testimony to this, is you're leaving the subway. There's signs all over the subway that say this. And I I literally wrote it down. Stand behind the yellow line. Don't become a statistic. (laughs) And I kept on reading, and here's what it said. I I thought, do people ever just kind of drift over that yellow line? Well, here's what the sign said. In 2014, 145 people were struck by the train. 58 people were killed in New York City in the subway. And watch this. Because they didn't heed the warning to stay behind the yellow line. You cross that yellow line, there's a price to pay. Now, what in the world does that have to do with where we're going in 2 Samuel 11? Well, all over the subway were these warning signs. Watch out, watch out, watch out. Don't become a statistic. As we walk through the Bible together and as we read through the story together, there's there's some stories that we come to that just encourage our heart. There's some stories that we come to that we read them, and man, we're ready to go take on the world. They're just so encouraging and so uplifting. There's some stories that we read that just reveal the the nature of God, and there's some stories we read that just challenge us in our faith, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's some stories we read that we come to, and it's like a warning sign. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but it says this about some of these stories we're reading. 1 Corinthians 10, go ahead and put that verse up on the screen. It says this, These things happened to them, talking about the Old Testament stories, as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Some things you read, like 2 Samuel 11, is designed to be a warning to us. 1 Corinthians 10, the next verse says this, verse 12. Therefore, let him who think he stands take heed that he does not fall. So I was kind of praying through this and getting ready for this message. And and again, thinking about that yellow line illustration. It occurred to me that you and I and all of us in our faith at times, we toy with things in our lives that we know are going to hurt us. And we get as close to that yellow line as we can. Sometimes we cross over that yellow line. Well, 2 Samuel 11 is designed to be one of those things to give us a warning. Hey, don't become a statistic. Let the Spirit of God speak some truth into our hearts this morning and reveal some things in our life that we might be toying with. We might be crossing that yellow line or we might be right at it. Our our nature as human beings, we try to get as close to that line as we can and think we're going to be okay with that 50 mile an hour train's coming by. 2 Samuel 11 is all about King David. Now we've been reading about David for the past few weeks. Most of you know a lot about King David, but... Just to remind you some realities of what the Bible says about King David as we read his story here in just a second. We know that King David was one of the most significant people in all the Bible. King David was known as one of the greatest kings of Israel. One of the, 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 the prime times of that nation, of their greatest times in their history was when David was their king. Acts 13 says of David, he was a man after the very heart of God. I say all that because it's very important for you to understand we're not 
Let me just get your attention. This is huge. We're not getting ready to read a story about a fringe guy. We're not getting ready to read a story about a guy who only showed up at church on Christmas and Easter, all right? This was a guy that you look at and you think, man, that's, I want to model my life after him. Or this is a guy who the hand of God is in his life. Was he a perfect man? Of course not. He was a man. 2 Samuel 22 says he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote God's word under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God spoke through him. He was used by God, but he was a man. He was a human being. We're going to see he got very close to a yellow line, and he crosses a yellow line here in his life, and we're going to look at some of the consequences in the life of David. So, Let's begin reading 2 Samuel 11, 1, all of that kind of introduction. The writer of 2 Samuel says this. Let me back up really quick and give you a little bit of the context first. Remember, David is firmly established as the king. He's experienced quite a bit of success militarily, politically. Uh, Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a lot of his military conquests. Israel is healthy, it's successful, if you will. They've defeated a lot of their enemies. And then you come to chapter 11, and it begins, Then it happened in the spring. At a time when kings go out to battle. Now, David's the king. It's customary in those days that during the wintertime, the king would kind of retreat and rest, if you will. The armies would rest because of the weather and different things like this. There wasn't a lot of fighting during the wintertime. Now it's spring. His armies have gone out to battle. David sent Joab, that's his commander, the leader of his armies, and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbi. In other words, they go out and they start fighting again in the spring. There's some conquests that need to be taken care of. End of verse 11 is a little bit of a foreshadowing. It says, David stayed back in Jerusalem. His army is at war. He sent out his commander. David hangs back in Jerusalem at the palace. Verse 2 says, Now, when evening came, goes to a particular day in the life of David. When evening came, David arose from his bed. Some of you all go, man, I like that. He's been sleeping all day. What's he been doing? I don't know. Maybe he's... Maybe some of the disciplines in his life have begun to slip and it's literally the afternoon and David's just getting out of bed. Or maybe it's an afternoon nap, we don't really know. But he's getting up out of bed. The Bible says he walks to the top of the palace, the king's house. He's walking around there on the roof of the palace. And you say, why is that important? Stop right there for just a second. Jerusalem's not a big city at this day. The palace where David lived was by far the tallest structure in all of Jerusalem. So from the top of his house, where they spent a lot of time on the roof, you could literally see all of Jerusalem. You could see down into people's residence, and there was no indoor plumbing, so if people bathed, they did that outside. So David's just kind of meandering around on the top of the palace. It's evening, the, the, you know, the sun may be starting to set, and he looks over the edge of the palace, and he sees a woman bathing. If you're reading this, there's a couple triggers that are intended to go off in your mind. You're to read this and some things are to go off and you're to, you're to think to yourself, trouble, trouble. 
That yellow line's out there. It's pretty far from him right now, but it's there. So this woman is over there bathing. End of verse 2 says, and she was very beautiful in appearance. She catches David's eye. Now let's be real honest. Is it wrong that David sees a beautiful woman? Of course not. Is it even wrong that he acknowledges, man, that's a beautiful woman? Of course not. Look what happens. Verse 3. David lingers there. Verse 3 says, When David sent and he inquired about the woman, who is this? She's very interesting to me. She, she's getting my attention. I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to find out who she is. I'm just curious. He sends out some people to find out about David or about this woman. Her name is Bathsheba. And that's the answer he gets. Verse 3, someone says to him, Is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam that comes into great importance later on as you read in 2 Samuel. And she's the wife of Uriah. Warning! <laughs> David, you just need to know she's, she's a married woman. She's married to Uriah. By the way, Uriah is one of the commanders of your military army. He's off at battle. That's all you really need to know about her, David. It didn't stop there. Many of you know this story. Verse 4 Again, it's one of those verses you read in the Bible and you know what you know about David and his character. And verse 4 is one of those verses that grabs your attention. So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. I mean, I don't know all that goes on through David's mind and I can speculate a little bit. He's obviously gone down a path of no return. He started down this slippery slope and maybe in his mind he's thinking, you do know I'm the king, right? Well, and I really have the right, if you will, to anything in this kingdom. Maybe it was a moment of pride. Maybe it was a moment of weakness. Whatever it was, you see the progression in the life of David. So he literally brings Bathsheba back to his house he has relations with this woman who's not his wife. The Bible says, after she had purified herself from uncleanness, Old Testament ceremonial rite she's carrying out here, she returns to her house. Now we don't know, maybe a few days pass. Evidently they did. Messenger comes back to David, verse 5. The woman conceived. Now she's pregnant. David's the father. She sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Imagine that message coming back in the ears of David. So let's just stop right there for a minute and try to get our minds around a little bit of what we're reading here. Remember, some stories are given to us to be a warning in our lives. As a pastor, I have no idea what's going on in all the lives of the people in this room. But I have to trust that God sovereignly uses His Word in our lives at just the right time and trust the Spirit of God to take this and press it down into your life and your heart where you're living today. But I want to give you three or four warnings that we can draw just from these opening verses and then we're going to continue on in the passage. Let me give you a few warnings that we can draw from this. Warning number one is this. We need to be warned and reminded that there is a daily ongoing war raging in each of us with sin. Right? Now, if you, if you forget that and you lose sight of that, then you, then you begin to drift into this almost not realizing that you're in a battle and you don't even realize you're in a battle. You've, you're as good as already lost the battle. Children of God, men and women, boys and girls who know Christ, you are in a daily struggle with this thing called sin. 
Theologically, we know that when we place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, Redeemer, and Lord, the penalty of our sin is paid for. It is atoned for. It is covered positionally in Christ. We know that. All your sin is paid for in Christ. You can't pay for a single sin. The penalty of sin is gone, right? But the presence of sin in our lives still remains. We wrestle with our old habits and we wrestle with our own tendencies. We have great capacity to sin as followers of Christ. Paul puts it this way, Romans 7. You've probably read this before. In this context, Paul says, so I find, Romans chapter 7, so I find to be a new law, or or to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. Paul says, even as a follower, there's this struggle we can relate to that, right? We, we all can relate to that. He says, for I delight in the law of God. I love God. I love His Word in my inner being. Go ahead. But I see a different, I, I see in my members, my body, another law, waging war against this law of my mind, making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's Paul speaking as a believer, saying, as a follower of Christ, the penalty of sin is paid in Christ, but man, we still struggle here on planet Earth, don't we? Struggle. David struggles here. He he wrestles with this thing called sin. That's a warning. We need to be reminded of that this morning. Warning number two is this. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. Each of us has an incredible capacity for self-deception and great sin. I'm raising my hand at the front of that line. David was a man after God's own heart. David was an author of Scripture by the Spirit of God. David was the king of Israel. That's all important for us to realize. Listen, if we ever get to the place, here's where we get sometimes. We think, man, that could never happen to me. Let's just be honest with each other. Let's try to take the church face off as much as we can today and say this. You and I, we have a great capacity for self-deception and great sin. All of us. David's an example of that. See, how in the world could he go from being the author of Scripture to being used by God in such a way to, to where you read this, I mean, again, this, this account in 2 Samuel, it's like a warning sign to us, just a glaring railroad crossing line. How did he get there? Let me give you five things that you notice here really quickly. These are not going to be on the screen. Maybe some things that progressed in David's life. I'll give you these very quickly. Number one, David had an overestimation of his strength. When David looked at himself, he, he maybe thought, I could never fall into something like that. You've probably heard this before. Howard Hendricks was seminary professor from Dallas Seminary, and he did a survey of a thousand men, actually a thousand pastors who had fallen morally and went through all of these things that led to their fall, their great sin. You fill in that blank, whatever it may be, their great sin. One of them is they begin to spend no time with the Lord. Their time with Jesus began to drift. They began to be isolated from others. They had no community. And every single one of them said this, I never thought it would happen to me. You got to be thinking, David's thinking, I could never do something like Secondly, there was a neglect of discipline. 
It appears that some other things in David's life began to slide. He began to be undisciplined in other areas of his life. He's not where he's supposed to be. His army's out at battle. It's the afternoon and he's getting up out of bed. There seems to be some discipline that begins to slide in other areas of his life. And here's a reality for you and I. A lack of discipline in one area will begin to manifest itself in other areas of our life. Just the way we're wired. Thirdly, there was a costly curiosity. Man, that's practical. Did y'all hear that? There was a costly curiosity. Who is that woman? I mean, you just fill in the blank for whatever your struggle might be here. There was this curiosity. I'm going to find out a little bit more about her. I'm going to click another click with my mouse. I'm going to get into another conversation. There's just curiosity here. David began to inquire about Bathsheba. Fourthly, he began to flirt instead of flee with sin. What does that mean? He got as close to the yellow line as he could. He fell in. Some of you right now who are here this morning, I think the word for you, the word for us, is 2 Timothy or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 2, very clear from the Apostle Paul. Here's what it says. Flee. Flee immorality. Flee sin. Whatever you are toying with right now. And let me just be honest. We're talking about some things right now. You don't have to start drumming up some stuff in your head. I believe the Spirit of God might be bringing some things to your mind that some of you in this room are just starting to toy with. The Word of God for you this morning for this passage in the New Testament might be this. Run! David's over on top of that house. He's just looking at that moment. Here was his step of obedience by the Spirit of God. David, you see that woman? Yes, she's attractive. Turn and run and go the other way, man. Flee. Run. And fifthly, the thing you see in David very quickly is isolation. David separated himself from his army. They're out to battle. It's possible he has very little accountability at this moment. One of the reasons we talk so much here about community and you engaging in groups, life groups, study groups, is not so we can check your name off on a box and say, look, our numbers are so strong. If you think you can walk the Christian life by yourself in isolation, you are already deceiving yourself. You have got to have men and women speaking into your life, calling you out, loving you enough to challenge you. We will deceive ourselves. Proverbs says, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. If you think you can live on an island and not fall into great sin, you're you're deceiving yourself. So David is in isolation and all these things seem to lead to that. Now, very quickly, what's David going to do? Many of you know the rest of this story. Maybe some of you don't. I'll do this very quickly. What does David do? 2 Samuel 11, 6. Go back there. So David realizes he's in trouble. He's the king. He's gotten a woman that's not his wife pregnant. It's not just a woman. She's the wife of one of his commanders, a man named Uriah. So verse 6 says that David sends to Joab and says, Joab, get Uriah back here to Jerusalem. So Joab, the commander, sends Joab or Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, back to Jerusalem. David has two plans. Plan A is this. 
Uriah, I'm going to bring you back, give you a little R&R, and we'll give you a little time off. You go down, spend some time with your wife, maybe take a trip, maybe watch a movie, go out to dinner, enjoy, watch this, enjoy your wife. Hoping that they will engage in natural relations as husband and wife do, and then nobody will really know who the father is. They'll all think it was Uriah. Great plan. Except Uriah doesn't play David's game, and Uriah never goes to Bathsheba. He, he's so loyal to David, and he's so loyal to Joab and his armies, he literally sleeps at the door of the king's palace and says, how can I go enjoy the blessings of my wife when my brothers and sisters are out fighting in battle? David's plan doesn't work. So he tries to use Uriah. That doesn't work. And then he's going to try to dispose of Uriah. Verse 14 says, Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Imagine this. Just imagine this. He writes out this letter, puts it in Uriah's hand, says, Uriah, I'm so proud of you. You're doing a great job. Make sure Joab gets this. Takes it to Joab on the front lines. Here's what the letter says. He had written a letter saying, verse 15, Place Uriah in the front line of the most fierce battle and withdraw from him so that he may, struck, may be struck down and die. David, man after God's own heart, puts a letter in Uriah's hands that's his death sentence. So he gets to Joab. Uriah doesn't know anything about it. Joab says, okay, Uriah, we're going to put you in a new place of battle, puts him on the front lines, and you know what happens if you know the rest of the story. Uriah's there in the front of the battle, and Uriah's killed in battle. So now David has blood on his hands. In verse 26, when, you know, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Word gets to Bathsheba that her husband is dead. Word gets back to her. David then takes Uriah or Bathsheba and marries her. She becomes his wife. And for a few moments, now watch this really carefully. Actually, for about a year and a half, maybe two years, David thinks he's gotten away with it. Nobody knows. This, this period of time goes on. And then you get to a very striking verse, 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, says this, The chapter ends with this warning. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. When I was reading this this week, a little phrase came to my mind. It was this. I know this is heavy this morning, so just bear with me. A, A believer can commit any sin, right? But because of our relationship with God, you can't get away with anything. God loves us that much. As parents, Jennifer and I have already always prayed for our children. They're sitting right down here. They know this. They hear this. God, they're going to do things that we don't know about. They're going to get involved in things. Lord, don't let them get away with anything. Because we love them. So from this, we draw a few more warnings. Let me give you a couple more warnings. Warning number three is this. When we sin, and and I'm particularly talking this morning about willful sin that we go into we toy with it we know it's wrong but we just continue down a path when we willfully sin here's our tendency our natural tendency is to cover it up do you know that 
When David sins, the first thing he does is, is he thinks, okay, I got to figure out a way to cover this thing up. I got to figure out a thing to hide this from everybody. I got to hide this from God as if he could. And he deceives himself with a cover-up. You realize you learned that from your original mother and father, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden. The Bible says the first thing they did is they drifted over into the corner of the garden. They sowed fig leaves and they covered themselves up. What were they trying to do? They were trying to cover their sin. You and I deceive ourselves to thinking even when we have sinned that we should cover it up or we can somehow cover it up. Now, warning number four. You see this from the life of David. Our efforts to cover our own sin will always lead to greater and greater sin. See that? Well, I know this was wrong, Lord, and I know I need to make this right, but I'm just going to kind of cover this one up, and I'm going to push it to the side. Never stays there, ever. God loves you too much for that. So there will be a progression And the progression is you will continue in deeper sin in your efforts to cover it up as God is pursuing you. And you foolishly think, I foolishly think that I can cover my own sin. Now, I want to ask a very important practical question this morning for you and I. What happens in our lives as followers of Christ when we willfully sin and then try to cover it up? Again, we, we wrestle with sin all day long. We wrestle with thoughts. We wrestle with things like that. I'm not talking about just things like that. I'm talking about willful, intentional sin. You know is wrong. You've crossed that line. And then your attempts, you try to cover that thing up. What happens? And remember, theologically, as a child of God, the penalty of your sin before God forever and ever is paid in Christ. You are in Christ. We're talking about living practically here on earth. There's still consequences and ramifications of sin in our lives. So what does that look like? As a son or daughter, there are always consequences. There will be godly conviction. There will be hindered fellowship with God. There will be hindered fellowship with others. And I'll just add this. Sin always brings forth a death of something. Something. Opportunity. Joy. The health of a relationship. Sin always has a consequence. So what happened in the life of David? Psalm 32. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read this to you really quick. Psalm 32 is David's own testimony of what happened in his own soul, in his own life, when he attempted to cover this thing up. So I'm going to read this to you very quickly. Psalm 32. I'll pick up in verse 3. David's talking about the blessedness of forgiveness and when God forgives and he's talking now kind of looking back to that time in his life when he tried to cover this heinous sin up verse 3 he says when I kept silent about my sin it's making reference back to this that we just read my body wasted away through my groaning all day long translation there was literal physical effects to him hiding his sin parentheses Is all physical sickness because you're hiding sin? No, okay? So quit pointing fingers at each other. Well, you were sick the other day. You must be, no. But a Christian can commit any sin, but a true believer can get away with nothing because of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. 
David said, my body literally wasted away through my groaning all day long. There was a conviction in his life. There was a heaviness in his life. Verse 4, day and night, your hand, talking to God, was heavy upon me. My vitality, that's my energy, my strength, was drained away as with the fever, heat of summer. Selah is a pause, just a pause and reflect on that for a minute. There was immediate results in his life, internal, this heaviness. Now, don't go to an extreme here and start trying to conjure up, well, Lord, is there this sin? Or, Lord, have I done this? David knew his sin. When the Spirit of God, listen, this is huge for some of you. Some of you walk around living in guilt all the time because you think you've sinned. The Spirit of God will do His job. The Word of God will do its job. When the Spirit of God is convicting of sin, He's very specific. He'll make it clear in your life. So David experienced this conviction of his heart. There was something he knew was not right. And there's this heaviness in his life. Who's responsible for that? David says at verse 4, he says, Your hand, O God, was heavy on me. And let me share with you another theological truth. It's huge for you if you're here as a child of God. You have a covenant. We talked about it last week. You are in a covenant relationship as a child of God with with your Father. He is committed to you no matter what. And even when we sin, even when we pursue sin, even when we go into sin, your Heavenly Father continues to faithfully pursue you. Aren't you glad? You say, can you show me that in the Bible? Hebrews chapter 12. Just put it up on the screen. We don't have time to turn all the pages. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen. New Testament, quoted from Proverbs 3, the writer of Hebrews brings it over and he says this, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son or daughter whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there that the father, that, that, whom the Father does not discipline? Go to the next verse. But if you are without discipline, I'm going to explain this in just a second of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. That's a scary verse. Let me tell you why that verse is so scary. I've been in this conversation, I was in this conversation a week ago. I'm in this conversation all the time. Are you telling me that as a child of God, by the grace of God and the cross of Christ, your sins are completely forgiven and taken away in Christ? Positionally, absolutely, they're gone. And the argument is, well, then... As a Christian, you just go out and do whatever you want, right? You just go sin. You just go live it up. You just do whatever you want. No, here's why. Number one, you're a new creation from the inside out. God has changed your heart. He's changed your desires. And secondly, you have a heavenly father. Watch this. You have a heavenly father. No matter what you fall into, no matter what you stumble into, he will not let you go and he will pursue you with loving discipline. Isn't that good? The reverse of that needs to be heard by some of you here this morning. If you can sin willfully, and you can disobey willfully, and you can progress down that path with no conviction, with no heaviness, with no activity of the Spirit of God in your life, by the authority of Hebrews 12.8, you are not a son or daughter of God. It's heavy, isn't it? 
See, one of the reasons we know we're true children is because, yes, we sin. Yes, we blow it. But I have a heavenly Father who's going to pull me back into fellowship with Him. He's going to pursue me and do whatever it takes. Let me illustrate this for you. Let's say there's five boys outside today in the parking lot. And, man, they're just causing a ruckus. I mean, they're out there, I don't know, let's just take it to the extreme. They're smashing windows, five of them. And I go out there to all those five boys and I say, hey, you boys need to stop to all five. But one of those boys, I take by the arm and take him away with me and we have to talk a little later. What can you conclude about that one? That's my boy. My boy. See, when you read Hebrews 12, that is to encourage you, that is to strike a little fear in your heart, but it's also to remind you, you are in a covenant relationship with Almighty God. We stumble, we fall, we drift, but your God pursues you. God Almighty pursued David. How did he do it? He did it through an internal conviction, and he also did it through community. Here's your life principle really quick. My principle number one, I'm going to give you two of them. God actively and faithfully disciplines and trains his own children. He disciplined him through an internal conviction. He disciplined him through the work of the Spirit. And then he disciplined him in another way. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. If you have it open, you can turn there very quickly. God disciplined him another way. David doesn't turn. David continues to try to cover it up. So God continues to pursue David. How did he do that? 2 Samuel 12, 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan. (laughs) God put it on the heart of the prophet Nathan in the covenant community of the nation of Israel. He said, you're going to go to David and you're going to expose his sin. Now imagine being the prophet. Really? (laughs) You want me to go to the king? Yeah. Here's what's going on. And you're going to go to him as a brother, as the prophet of Israel, and you're going to expose his sin. Nathan had to be thinking, man, is he going to take my head off? The Bible says he goes to David and he tells a story. And you, you know this. You can read it on your own. He tells a story about a man who had these sheep and he had a bunch of sheep. And instead of using one of his own sheep, when a visitor came in town, he went to this poor man and took his one little sheep. He took that one little sheep and he brought it into his house. And he slaughtered that one little sheep to feed his guest, even though he had hundreds of his own sheep. Nathan said, David, what do you think about that? And David said, that is so unacceptable and unrealistic. And man, that, that person, he needs to be condemned to death. He's so out of line. That one is a sinner. And you know, one of the greatest lines in the Bible, 2 Samuel 12, chapter 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan then turns to David and said, Oh yeah, David? You're the man. You are that man. And God used the conviction of the Spirit. God used the fellowship of Nathan in his life, and David comes to a place of brokenness and true confession over his sin. Let me say a word here very quickly, and our time is almost up. I pray that we have a church full of Nathans who you're willing to go to brothers and sisters lovingly, not in a critical judgmental spirit, not in, well, I would never do that, but in brokenness because you love your brother and sister and you see them headed down a path. And I pray we would be able to receive when Nathan step into our lives.
That is true community. Community is a lot more than iced tea. Community is being willing to be honest about who you are. It's being willing to, to receive the conviction and God using others in your life. God, give us that type of community and church here. Right? So what does David do? Psalm 32, verse 5. The Bible says that David acknowledged his sin. I, I'm not going to take the time to read the rest of it in 2 Samuel. Our time is almost up. You can read it on your own. David, under the conviction of the Spirit, through Nathan, he acknowledges. He says, I've sinned. He comes clean. He acknowledges it. And then you can read about it. 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. David experiences true confession. Let me show you just a few things really quick about true, honest confession as the work of God is going on in your life. We see it from David. I'm going to give you four of them really quick. Number one, David's confession. He realizes it's first against God. 2 Samuel 12, uh, Psalm 51, verse 4. And 2 Samuel 12, David, both times in his confession, says this, I have sinned against God. Yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I sinned against Uriah. Yes, I sinned against my own family. First and foremost, if the confession is wrought by the Spirit of God, it is an awareness, God, you who love me, who died for me, you've redeemed me, I have sinned against you. David acknowledges that. Second, he's honest about his sin. Psalm 32, 5, he says this, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He uses three words there. He's very specific about his sin. He doesn't play games. He uses transgression. That means rebellion. Sin means missing the mark. And then he uses the word iniquity, which means a perversion or a twisting. He said, I have rebelled, I have failed, and I have perverted my life before you. He's honest. And a huge part of confession. I wish I had 20 more minutes this morning. I don't. I'm going to be very brief. Something we pray for that we know that the, the winds and the waves of revival are coming is when we as church people are really honest. We're honest. And if we're on the receiving end, we're able to receive somebody who is being honest. David is honest about his sin. True confession is going on. Thirdly, you see, in his confession, and this is huge, David does what we must do in this time of confession as followers of Christ. David runs to his sin bearer. Now watch this, Psalm 32, 7. I know we've not been in order. If you can find that verse, this verse is huge. Remember our tendency when we sin is to what? Cover it, right? That's our tendency. We want to cover it. David, as a moment of confession, realizes something. Psalm 32, 7 says this. God, all this is part of his confession. You are my hiding place. If you circle, if you write in your Bible, circle that word hiding place. The word hiding place in the original language means this. Ready? Covering. Atonement. He says, I'm not going to try to cover this thing anymore. I'm bringing it out in the light. Watch this. And by faith, I'm trusting you, my Savior and my Redeemer, to cover it. you got two options. Either you try to cover your own sin, or you allow the Lord of glory to cover your sin. That's your two options. 
So David runs to his sin bearer. And then fourthly and finally, he rejoices in forgiveness that is made real in his experience. He says, Psalm 32, 11, After this confession, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy all who are upright in heart. Psalm 51, verse 7 and 8. Purify, he says, me from my sins and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Somehow we think part of confession is I've got to beat myself up enough to atone for my own sins. No, Jesus Christ is fully sufficient to cover all your sin. Give it by faith to him. Positionally, the penalty of sin has gone forever. Practically, we bear sin that sins against the fellowship from time to time, and we have to confess as a regular part so that, just like David, forgiveness will be real in our experience. And we will trust the Lord by being drawn to our sin bearer. This morning... We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a few moments. It's a very appropriate morning, I think, to do that. In fact, I'm going to invite the team to come on up on stage, but let me, let me strongly encourage you. We're, we're not finished, okay? I want you to listen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper is designed to be a memorial. It's a symbol. That bread is a reminder, is a symbol of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you and for me. The, the juice that we'll drink together as followers of Christ in a minute is a reminder of His blood that was spilled to cover your sin. I also believe that the Lord's Supper was given to the local church. We take it as a part of the community of believers to be a purifying time in the life of His church. We never stray too far from the cross. What, what does that mean? Here's what that means. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to bow your head so that you can focus on the Lord. And I'm going to ask you to do business with God there. What does that mean this morning? It may mean for many of you that the Spirit of God is making you aware of some things in your life that you need to confess to Him and maybe confess to others. It may be that God has made some things aware to you. You're getting really close to that yellow line. You're, you're toying with things, and this warning has come in a good time. And you want to cry out to Him, Lord, forgive me for even getting close. Run! Some of you may be here, and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior at all. And this morning, as, as heads are bowed in just a moment, your prayer is, Lord Jesus, I need you as Lord and Savior and Redeemer. I give you my life. Forgive me of all my sin past, present, future and by faith receive Jesus Christ what I'm going to ask is you spend a few minutes before the Lord doing business with the Lord go ahead and bow your heads as heads are bowed and eyes are closed there's no distraction before you come and take the Lord's Supper is there anything you need to make right between you and God is there anything you need to make right between you and a brother or a sister area of your life, you're drifting really close to sin. Remain there with your heads bowed for just a moment. I'm simply going to read 1 John over you and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we believers confess our sins 
He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, practically in our day-to-day life. 1 John 2 says, My dear children, I'm writing these things so that we will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an intercessor who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. You have a righteous advocate before the Father pleading your case. Press into your Savior, King Jesus. Lord, we love you. Thank you, and I pray you use this time this morning in the life of this church family. Thank you for pursuing us. We now look to you, our righteous one, because we are not righteous, but you are. Praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.